Welcome to episode 72 of the Minimalist Vegan Podcast. Hello, my name is Michael and I'm joined by my wife, Marsha. Hello. And on this show, we talk about what it means to live with less stuff and more compassion. In this conversation, we're diving into the ethics of zoos, uh, something that's very near and dear to many of us and formulates a lot of our experiences that we have with animals. Um, But whether you're vegan or not, is supporting the zoo industry ethical? It's not as straightforward as most of these topics aren't, but uh, we look forward to getting into the great areas of animal entertainment, which I don't think we've really covered much on this podcast today. Uh, But before we get into that, there's a quick note from our sponsor. This episode is sponsored by Warren, a brand that's by women for women. Warren is a Copenhagen company owned by two sisters, Arena and Anya Warren. They have a passion for life in the slow lane and both share an enthusiasm for sustainable underwear and everyday essentials. They believe that most things can be fixed with a good attitude and some comfy clothes that don't compromise on style and feeling amazing. The last thing you want is your underwear riding up and the bra chafing or trying to suffocate you. I'm sure I'm not the only one that would normally take my bra off the second I'd walk in the door. Not with these bras. They're seriously become my new favorite. Their aim is to create lingerie that will always be the first thing you want to put on and the last thing you want to take off. Warren don't use any toxic chemicals, dyes or any metal wiring in their products. At the core of Warren, there's a strong respect for the people they work with and the environment they work within. We have a special offer for our listeners, giving you 15% off storewide using the discount code MINIMALISTVEGAN at checkout. That's 15% off. Terms and conditions apply. They've also just opened up for worldwide shipping. To learn more about Warren and their full range, visit warrenstore.com. That's W-O-R-O-N store.com. Now back to the show. It's interesting. Ever since I became vegan, it's like if there's been any profit made as a result of animals across any fields, yep. automatically I'm just like, okay, yeah, that's unethical. It's not vegan. You know, what else is there to discuss? Mm. But when you dive into the zoo industry in particular, um, you'll find that there's a lot of somewhat valid arguments for why these infrastructures are in place. And and I think that's what makes it really challenging to figure out what's the right thing to do here. So I think before we get into, you know, the fundamentals of what a zoo is, the, how it's structured, the business model, the ethical considerations and alternatives, I thought we could take a step back and just talk about, as humans, our fascination with animals and why this can drum up so much attention. Um, And I just want to make a reference to one of our early episodes, episode number five, where we talk about our obsession with animals across uh, all these different signals from entertainment to media to movies to to pets to encyclopedias and all of that stuff. So go back and listen to it if you haven't already. Um, But I don't know, like for you growing up, what was your experience or memories of a zoo? And did you ever have any concerns at the time when you were supporting the zoo industry? I mean, I don't quite recall if I had concerns. I think even though I loved seeing the animals there, at times I was aware that the space probably wasn't as big as it needed to be for some of the animals. So when you're looking at lions, tigers, 
gorillas, how they have their enclosures. I think giraffes and elephants had bigger spaces to walk around. And so that kind of sat in the back of my mind. But I I think I was just more fascinated by the fact that I literally had a tiger 20 metres from me. And so that didn't really bother me back then. And I remember going to zoos as a kid and my dad would never, ever go. He would never go with us as a family because he thought that it was, he just didn't want to participate. He thought that it was the wrong thing to do. But I never really questioned it. So it's interesting now coming full circle to realising, well, he didn't want to participate because of the ethics of, you know, what was going on. Um, But aquariums was a a thing that I also really enjoyed going to. And, you know, when you here in Australia, when you go to areas like Queensland, you have all of the theme parks, the theme parks. And I remember going to SeaWorld and seeing the dolphins put on a performance and all of that. And now... I kind of feel sick to my stomach when I think the kind of life that they actually live and all of the controversy around all of the theme parks that have animals in them. So, yeah, I I do remember enjoying going to the zoo and having a great time. Even I remember a couple of school excursions. But I haven't been to the zoo in probably 10 plus years. So I can't quite recall what it was like, but I do remember enjoying it. But still in the back of my mind, I sort of felt sad for them because I knew that this is where they were day in, day out. And it just, there was something that didn't quite sit well with me, but it's like eating meat. You put it to the back of your mind, you know that it's a chicken or a cow or whatever it is, but you you try not to think about it when you're consuming it, so... Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. I find it interesting that even though your your dad had a certain perspective about zoos, uh, even as a child, I mean, you're, you're just so curious uh, and enjoying the experience so much that you can tend to even override those type of things. Yeah. And um, and that's the power. That's the power of zoos and, and, and those ticket prices. And uh, it is really seen as a family outing, isn't it? It's something mm. to do with the kids. It's yeah. a way to learn and it brings a lot of happy feelings and memories for a lot of people, I'm sure, mm. to be able to see some of these animals. Um, and you? Boringly enough, I don't, I don't recall. I don't actually recall going to a zoo, um, which is strange. I do do remember going to an aquarium, but not so much a zoo or any feelings that I had. So I don't really have any reflections to comment on. But I think, you know, even just looking at the history of zoos and, you know, how far they've come. I mean, these structures have been around for thousands of years, dating back to 3500 BC. Historians think that it started in Egypt and kings would keep hippos, baboons, and large cats just to flex, just to feed their egos, to say that they had these exotic creatures mm. um, as a symbol of wealth and power and control. And modern zoos as we know them today have been around since the 1800s and have evolved to be a massive market. We're talking about 700 million people visit zoos every year at least. Obviously, Pre-COVID. Pre-COVID, <laughs> pre-COVID. Um, so I'm not sure what those numbers are today uh, with the restrictions. But, you know, this is uh, certainly something that's penciled into a lot of school holidays and first dates and, you know, things that we do in our local communities. 
Just on that, now that we mentioned pre-COVID, I wonder what happened to the zoo industry when everything shut down, you know, what was happening with the animals because they were used to being surrounded by people mm. on, on a daily basis and all of a sudden, nothing. They had a lot of peace and quiet, less disturbances and I don't know, like if the money's not being brought in, like what happens to maybe some of these animals? That's something that I guess we, before recording, we hadn't considered, but maybe that's something that you guys can, if you're interested, have a look into and get an idea of, you know, is it all for show and for profit or do they really take care of the animals even when the crowds aren't around to bring in the dollars? So are you in a roundabout way saying that like if there's no revenue coming in, would there be some implications for the animals? Yeah. Like mm. being put down or because yeah. there's no... Um, like they probably have less staff working. There's no, not much staff. There's not as much value. That's, mm. yeah, that's a really... Or relocating them relocating, to make yeah. more money. Yeah, that's, yeah. A, that's an interesting question. I mean, I, I, I imagine there would be some, like any business, right? It is a yeah. business. There's some tough decisions that would need to be made. Um, and, you know, speaking of which, you know, I want to talk into a bit about the operations of a zoo because really for a zoo, more often than not, the animals are seen as like inventory, you know what I mean? So uh, not always, but more often than not. So if we were to start an operator zoo to paint that picture, you know, there's a lot of different expenses involved from licensing to land space, feed, um, veterinary costs. And these startup costs can often cost like hundreds of millions of dollars, especially to have the right amount of acreage and space for the animals as well. Mm. So you need big money to be able to start up a zoo. The alternative is a petting zoo. So these are much smaller structures with domestic animals and some wildlife. And they typically cost up to about $50,000 to start. So we're talking up to $50,000 for a petting zoo to hundreds of millions for a um, a full-blown conventional zoo. And the rules for operating a zoo vary from state to state, country to country, of course. But, oh, by the way, we've written a, a pretty detailed post about this, which we'll link to in the show notes, which will be at the minimalistvegan.com slash 072. Um, when he says we, he means himself. Oh, <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Everything's a team effort here. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, check that out uh, because we're following the structure of that article for this as well with some added commentary. But when we wrote the article, well, when I wrote the article, we looked at the UK Zoo Licensing Act in 1981 and some of the parameters there was that it was mandatory part- participation. So what that meant is that every zoo needed to conduct uh, conservation research, training and breeding programs. They had to promote education and awareness of animals and biodiversity, and they had to accommodate animals properly, meaning that, in theory, you shouldn't have tropical animals that live in a tropical habitat in a harsh winter in the UK, for example, or vice versa. Um, Like accommodating as in like have areas that they can go into overnight or when it's snowing so that they don't freeze to death correct yeah. yeah so they can adjust to that climate environment. yeah that yeah. environment yeah and there had to be escape countermeasures to you know prevent animals from breaking out in other words you know putting them down fencing whatever you have to do to make sure that you know mm. 
that they don't escape and disrupt. Can you imagine even just like going letting loose? No, it's just interesting because I'm just thinking like when you first open the zoo and all of these animals that are not used to being in that environment are like, what is like, where have I been brought? What's going first through the animals' heads, but then also the people. Like I'm sure they have guards and stuff, 24-hour watch to make sure that nothing. But is there like animals communicating with each other? Hey, like let's get the hell out of here <laughs> and let's try and break free and like testing to see... Madagascar. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> how they can get out. Yeah. And like I wonder how many zoos... Like I'm sure obviously they they try and do the best job possible and make it impossible for them to get out. Mm. But like, still, there are some escape artists that can climb walls that especially, maybe they, yeah, especially monkeys. They yeah. didn't know. Well, they probably put them yeah. in an enclosure where it's completely fenced off, so mm. they literally can't get out. But it's just I find. Do you reckon some monkeys have stolen keys? Probably plotted, just plotted the whole thing out. Like <laughs> seen the patterns. It sounds like another movie. Yeah, <laughs> sounds like jail. <laughs> People trying to escape jail. So I would just find that like you know, quite nerve-wracking to think like once the sun rises, will there be like a cheetah out on the street yeah. trying to cross the street? Yeah. That'll be quite <laughs> that, the same. Uh, they didn't realise that had gone uh, missing. Yeah. So I'm sure there was uh, back in the early 1800s, they had a lot of mishaps escapes. And, and escapes. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm sure that act that was put into place has tried to capture some of those mistakes that have been made over many, many years. But yeah, there's certainly some rules that govern how to run a zoo. And yeah, so I mean, how how does a zoo make money? We know the startup costs, but in terms of the revenue, how it keeps the lights on, so to speak, is generally through ticket sales. This represents 90% of a zoo's revenue, right? Is the, the, the on admissions on average, yeah. yeah. So I mean, here in Australia, the ticket prices range from $26 up to about $50, depending on concession, students, adults, children. So, like our local zoo here charges $33 a person. For an adult ticket, yeah. Yeah. That's right. And the other approach a lot of zoos take is to bring in schools or do work functions as well and put together high-volume packages, Mm. um, which can be a good revenue stream for them. And then, of course, they've got annual memberships. Which I'm sure lots of families pay the money up front and then they can go as many times as as the kids want. Yes. Throughout the year, so... That's it. Yeah. So, a lot of the income is dependent on the public coming to visit the zoo. And how... Can a zoo be successful in this uh, train of thought? Well, it's going to come down to making a lot of ticket sales to support the expenses of running a zoo, which I imagine is going to be very expensive. And the sad truth is it's unlikely that by advertising local animals, common animals, farmed animals, that you're going to get a lot of interest to to attract people to come and buy tickets to the zoo. Yeah, so imagine if you had like... A zoo that just had cows, horses, pigs, ducks, maybe a couple of kangaroos if you're in Australia. Sounds like a farm. Like, yeah, like a semi-rural mm. wild slash wildlife farm. And that's not like they might as well go to like a friend of a friend's or a family member's, you know, farm yeah. Yeah. <laughs> to, to see these animals without having to pay a ticket. 
Yeah. So that's not going to be very exciting for a lot of people. Mind you, though, I think that a lot of kids would still find that quite interesting and enjoyable. I agree. I Mm. agree. But it's not probably as attractive. Of course. Oh, my God, a lion. (laughs) Yeah, a gorilla, a tiger, a cheetah, a bear, polar bear. Great white shark, you know, like mm. these are some things that are were just, I mean, I was fascinated by these creatures, you know, when I was growing up, these apex predators. So, um, and not just predators, I mean, you've got majestic animals like the giraffe and the elephants, um, things that you just never see really, mm. unless you went to that region, that part of the world to go see those animals in the wild, which is, of course, comes with its own danger. So it's the whole Jurassic Park thing, right? It's like... If 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 we actually had real life dinosaurs and you could go see it, I mean, would you pay tickets to go see dinosaurs? Uh, no. You wouldn't now, yes. You know what? But with what then, you know, but back then, maybe. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it would be something that's like really intriguing to be able to see. So, I mean, I would go now if there were like fake dinosaurs that yeah. looked like real dinosaurs. That would be yeah. pretty cool. <laughs> I think they'll run something like that here, actually. Yeah. <laughs> um, so to, to bring in those ticket sales and to generate that revenue, a lot of zoos, regardless of location, are importing these exotic animals Yeah. to add it to their portfolio. And if you go to many zoos' websites, they will really showcase these animals on their website and try and build up a bit of hype around it because we know it's going to bring people in so um they're like their uh what would you call them the um face of the brand or the face of the yeah of the zoo yeah exactly it's like the hero product it's the Mm. it's the core thing and Um, they're obviously paying more money for those types of animals to bring them in yes um because they know that if they have them on board that they're more likely to to bring in more people so yeah and talking about that do you want to speak on some of the unique experiences these zoos are creating with these exotic animals yes it's interesting back in our hometown of canberra i heard about this quite a few years ago it's been going on for quite a while there's a wildlife lodge where you can pretty much go and stay for as as many nights as you like and interact with the animals so your room your window will be right where the tigers the lions the cheetahs are or whatever animal is currently in that enclosure they tend to have then experiences where you pay the ticket you can also like I'm just looking at a picture where a woman from her balcony is feeding a giraffe And then a a woman is in a bathtub and she's looking at tigers that are literally like a meter apart from her, but there's a glass barrier there. So within that, they have different experiences. So you can go and meet a cheetah. That's a really popular tagline for this. And this is part of the zoo, but it's kind of like a separate section where they have these more exotic, dangerous animals that you get up close and personal with without being too close and personal with them so and these rooms are really well done it looks beautiful and they're really expensive so for a family of six that want to go and stay here you're looking at about sixteen hundred dollars a night wow and that's up to six people and then you have a couple of different experiences i think they take you to go and see a great white shark 
And also I think there's like a petting of a cheetah as well included in that or feeding the hyenas or something, you know, they can probably customize the package depending on what your child or what the family wants to do. So that's a big drawing card, I think, for this zoo is this part of accommodation because it's luxurious and, you know, it's an experience. I can see how that can be really appealing to a lot of people as like a special anniversary thing or even for your honeymoon. I imagine that sometimes people would want to book here to to do something locally, especially during COVID times when they can't get overseas. If they wanted to go on an African safari or something, this is sort of probably the closest thing that they can do. So yeah, it's just interesting to see how they're getting creative and doing different things even while you're eating you can be looking you know fine dining experience you can have a lion sitting there staring at you <laughs> eating your food yeah so but but yeah. again yeah it, it again the big the headline here are these exotic animals that naturally are on the other side of the world so yeah yeah it's um that's the big drawing card that's the big them. drawing yeah. card right that's what p- people are willing to pay for to yeah. experience so exactly it is, it is fascinating when you st- take a step back and you look at that business side mm. of zoos. But I suppose before we dive into the ethics of whether animals should be kept in, in zoos, it, it's worth noting a few reasons why many people believe zoos should have a place in our society. So yeah. one of the big arguments for zoos is that it educates the public about animals. Mm. Um, to increase that empathy, that connection that we have with animals. You know, for many of us who even have domestic pets can begin to understand our pets a little bit more and develop a bond. And it's that being in their presence in person comes with its own education and awareness. If we're just completely disconnected from animals, didn't really interact with them, we would probably have less empathy towards them and less respect towards how they live and what their needs are. So that's a fair argument for for having zoos. The other element is research and collecting data about animals. So uh, a portion of funding from some zoos are attributed to research, and over the last 20 years, zoos have contributed over 5,000 research papers including topics like poaching and hunting to provide awareness of what's happening. Um, Zoos also have a lot of conservation programs or uh, reintroduction programs where they're taking extinct animals or near extinct extinct animals and try and future-proof that species moving forward through these breeding programs. An example is in, in 1982, the California condor bird they were reported to be about 22 left in the world. Um, Fast forward to 2019, there are over 300 condors as a result of this breeding program and conservation program. So um, there's certainly, and there's many more case studies like that. Um, Again, you can go back to the article in the show notes. But there, there are examples of zoos taking that revenue and not only running the zoo and inventory and and staff and all the things that come with it, but they are attributing some of this money towards some uh, education, conservation, and research, uh, which is very positive. But at what cost? At what cost is are those elements 
enough to justify the exploitation of these animals in captivity. So let's talk about exploitation for a moment because when you look at the definition, it's something along the lines of someone who is treated unfairly for some sort of gain. And when you think about wild animals, they've spent thousands of years adapting to a certain way of living in a certain environment and climate. And for example, elephants are nomadic, highly nomadic animals and love to walk up to, sorry, I haven't done the conversions to miles here, but up to 195 kilometers when you know searching for food or in migration, um, but average out at about 25 kilometers per day. And they live in herds up to about 58 elephants in total. And elephants are... Like they're like humans. They they tend to raise their infants as a community. Um, mothers will take the females, yeah, yeah. yeah, the mothers will take turns and looking after each other's um, children. And there's a lot of these behaviors, whether it's the sheer size of space to be able to move around and walk all those kilometers, or living in a community that cannot be replicated in a zoo. It just so can't be. Typically, I think the most amount of elephants is less than a handful in one zoo. So when you think about most of them being up to 58 and then you're looking at what, two to three normally in in a zoo environment, it's not natural and normal for them. It's like putting two to three people in a space and calling it your life you're absolutely right it's um it's trying to put it into perspective of that, what that would scale to for human experience mm. and um you know it's it it sends elephants and other animals crazy i mean we've got birds who travel thousands of miles in the each year and you know these animals are in captivity with that restriction are going crazy and it's actually there's a term for it it's called zoocosis and this is when animals start to display behaviors that they are slowly starting to go insane as a result of these restrictions, whether it's swaying or pacing up and down or twitching or... Plucking their own feathers or skin or at each other. Yes. Or vomiting even. They were yeah. talking about certain elephants that were just vomiting. It's It's pretty sad to see. And even when you're looking at particular lifespans of of different animals they tend to be much longer than they are typically in a zoo so for instance a lifespan of an elephant I mean I know we keep using elephants as an example but it's a really good example because they're such a large animal Um, and you'd think normally in a zoo they have a pretty decent enclosure But so a lifespan of an elephant that hasn't been affected by anything is typically around 56 years. And then if they're poached, they normally reach the age of about 34. And in a zoo, it's half that at 17. So can you imagine how many animals, and this is just one type of animal, how many different animals life expectancy is shorter in a zoo than it is out in the wild? And yes, you might argue that out in the wild, there's many more predators, there's much more, you know, you can die from disease or injury or all of those things. But even then, 56 years compared to 17 is a massive difference. And the quality of life, though, for an animal in a zoo, I would even take a few years off that. 
And that could be because they're sad, they're lonely, they've gone crazy. And it's like really keeping someone in a prison for that long and expecting them to live a normal lifespan. Unless you're a clownfish. Yeah. Because clownfish, they don't really deviate from their home. This is the Finding Nemo fish. I mean, Nemo did. And, um, <laughs> you know, he went on quite the Look adventure. Got him. <laughs> yeah, but that was against his genetics. <laughs> like, so, so it's interesting. So, you, so if you've got clownfish or you've got animals that aren't so much affected by being in that constraint, that's mm-hmm. one thing. But again... But this is a tiny little fish. That's right. You know? it's, it's contextual, but it's like you're paying one ticket price for all of these animals. Mm. You know, it's not like you're just paying for one animal over the other. It's the whole package. So, yeah. and that becomes... Whether or not you want to support one or the other, you can't be like, well, I'd like my money, my $33, to just contribute to the clownfish and maybe some of the wildlife here. Yeah. Thank you very much. You know, like distribute those my funds into that account. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and it's interesting. So when you look at these restrictions that we put in these animals as a result of being in a zoo, it draws a lot of parallels to like domestic animals like you know if if a dog never gets walked and is just put in the kennel all day every day we'll probably consider that as as some level of abuse right Mm. um or even if they have sufficient amount of space that you would call for them to be able to walk around but they're in that enclosure all day every day most people would get upset if they saw that in someone's backyard that's it. And this is happening to some degree at these zoos. Yeah, it's it's hard because it's not even that they're just being exploited. It's like some of the other things that we've come to learn is that even they sometimes kill healthy animals. There was a news report from a few years ago where there was a zoo that was causing a lot of controversy in Copenhagen when they killed a perfectly healthy giraffe uh, because it was a surplus and they did it as a for educational purposes in inverted commas for children to see they killed the giraffe perfectly healthy nothing wrong with the giraffe they killed it and completely dismantled it and fed it I think to the lions and a lot of people were upset about that because they thought well what was the point of that like you didn't have to to do that to the animal and also within that year they killed uh, I think it was three or four lions as well baby cubs and because again they didn't have a purpose for them because they wanted to they were females they wanted to introduce a new male into the enclosure so they had to kill them off as they say and you just kind of wonder well it's just at their convenience you know like You can even, for the sake of that animal, yes, it might not live a very uh, joyful life, but transferring them to a different zoo or to a sanctuary or doing something else for them rather than just killing them off because that might be the less tedious way to do it. And even there was a, a gorilla that was back in 2016 in Cincinnati. The gorilla's name was Harambee. Harambee? I think is how you say it. He was 17 years old and a three-year-old boy fell into his enclosure 
and the gorilla sort of dragged the child through the water and was sort of sitting with it but you could experts from the videos that I watched were saying that the gorilla was a bit stressed and confused and didn't know what was going on of course because he's not around children and he's probably in a heightened situation considering that there's people yelling and screaming and the fact that he's in an enclosure he's more likely to be agitated or have some form of mental issues and they knew more so than not that This gorilla wasn't going to kill the child, but they didn't want to take any risks, so they killed him. And there was a massive outpour of protests going on, saying that they should have done something else and how did the mother let the child into the enclosure to begin with? Or was the enclosure, but it's all very debatable. And look, I just want to say that it's a very tough situation to deal with. Yeah. But ultimately, if an exotic animal wasn't there in the first place. Yes. This could have been completely mitigated and avoided. Mm. And unfortunately, an incident happened and it resulted in them having to put down this gorilla because they couldn't take any risks, which you can understand. But again, it could have been prevented completely mm. if it wasn't a situation in the first place. So yeah. it, it this goes to show that where there was these lions, these giraffes, these gorillas are being killed still being fully healthy because of these circumstances Mm. because of the construction of these zoos which is anything but ethical as a result of that and these are just the ones that sort of made it to the news i'm sure there's plenty more i think it was between three and five thousand animals just within european zoos in one year that were being killed yeah so it's far from perfect and there's a, there's a lot of things that's happened behind closed doors. There's even things like inbreeding different animals and so obviously they're mutating different genes and even releasing those animals into the wild. Like, for example, like we've talked about salmon when we talked about the – we had a fishing episode if you want to go back and listen to that one. I can't remember which episode it was but we'll link to it in the show notes – um, fish breaking from salmon farms into the wild and then mixing in with the wild salmon and then mutating those genes. And by the end of it, I can see in the next 10, 20 years, there not really being any wild salmon left. That's sort of the same thing. With lions, there was another example where they they mated a grandfather with the granddaughter and that can just in itself create a mutated gene deaths from complications and it just doesn't seem like the right thing to be doing to animals. And a lot of the time if they say eventually some of these animals be released out into the wild, well, try putting a domesticated dog like ours out into the wild and see if they survive. You know, like it's not going to happen because... They just can't function. Yeah, so animals die. animals bred into a zoo are likely to then live out the rest of their lives in a zoo Yeah, because of that. Yeah. And even so that surprised me that we were learning was that a lot of these animals are on some form of drug, whether it's antidepressants or anti-stress and anxiety tablets. It's just astounding that 
I mean, I knew of animals in certain countries where they have like, you know, come and pat the tiger or the lion. They were drugged so that they would be completely mellow and out of it so that they wouldn't attack. But animals in zoos, I wasn't aware that they were on medication a lot of the time just for being Their mental health, yeah. Yeah, all of these types of things. So that was really interesting as well. So a lot of the time the argument is for zoos trying to save endangered species. Yeah. And that's obviously something that's part of, as we were talking about, the 1981 Act from the UK as part of like setting up a zoo. But how much of that is actually happening and how much of that is happening successfully at every single zoo that exists? Do you want to talk a little bit more about that? Um, yeah, I think it's even though the legislation is there, it, it doesn't look like it's um, it can be as closely monitored or audited. There's always going to be things that slip through the cracks. On top of that, you know, at the end of the day, what it comes down to is that humans, us, we're causing the problem in the first place. You know, when we talk about endangered species, a lot of these animals are endangered because of human intervention, whether it's poaching, hunting cutting down trees, chemical burning sprays. chemical spraying chemicals and pesticides and um, it's our development and property and land. It's all of these factors that are contributing to extinction. And then we're going into these conservation programs which are sometimes hit or miss depending on, on the case study. So ideally animals need to be, you know, if they're going to be reintroduced to the wildlife, they should be bred in their natural habitat and and monitored and monitored to be reintroduced back into their climate um but obviously that's a very idealistic point of view a very resource heavy approach a very targeted approach Mm. and it's also very expensive when you don't get the benefit of those ticket sales to showcase those animals you know what i mean so it's um it's it's a bit of a it's a tough situation but I think it's just a bit of an endless cycle of our intervention causing the problem and then we're trying to fix that problem mm. and it's not quite working. And It's interesting because this is where I feel like governments need to step up more and even if the government invests more into education around this and then, and I'm sure that this is also what can happen a lot of the time is that certain organizations are formed around trying to save a particular extinct or endangered yeah. or close to extinct species out there. You got a research team with rangers and exactly. you know going out there all and, of that. Yep. Um so there's a lot of But that how much funding do these do those people get is the question, mm. you know, like you know, we, we can't comment, we don't know, but I imagine they don't, they don't have a huge amount of resources at their disposal to yeah, to and execute also, on that. And you also don't want it to just be in one particular area of that city or country or state. You know, you kind of want to spread the population to all of the possible areas where they can be so that it gives them a, a higher chance of survival and thriving as well. So, for instance, like in Tasmania, the, the Tasmanian devil's been on that list for a really long time. And it wouldn't make sense to just release them in one particular area 
or have a breeding program in just one particular area, it makes sense to sort of spread it around the state in different areas so that they have, you know, their own communities, their own populations, and that that way there's a higher chance of them being reintroduced properly into the wild. Yeah, that's it. But when it comes down to it, the punchline is if the altruistic view of a zoo is preservation, conservation, then the hypothesis is then that the majority of animals in any zoo's portfolio should be endangered, right? Wouldn't that be the argument? Yeah. Is that, okay, well, if if this is about conservation, mm. then the revenue should feed back to a portfolio of, you know, all these animals need to be helped. Yeah. Um, but when you look at the inventory in these zoos, and there's various reports, obviously, uh, depending on the zoo and the country. Some reports that we've read, and we'll link to it in the show notes, will say uh, some zoos have 5% of all their mammals which are actually endangered. So 95% are not even endangered. And then other stats go up to 23% of endangered species in a zoo. So even at the higher end of the spectrum, that's... 67% 67% of animals on the books that aren't endangered. So, my question is, why? Why is such high percentage of animals on your books that are not endangered? I mean, what's the purpose of that? So, it only kind of leads back to one answer, right? It comes back to that revenue piece, that monetary piece, that business aspect and that to me it comes down to the definition of exploitation it's like you're taking advantage of someone Mm. um to profit or gain some sort of advantage and you know if these ratios are more 50 50 or more towards the endangered side i could probably start to understand that a little bit more yeah um but these animals are not at risk yet they're being held in captivity and in some ways i almost feel like they will become at risk if there's more and more zoos that are demanding these animals and are removing them from the wild and putting them into cages. So as humans, we kind of look at a zoo and we think, oh, yes, they they do their best and they're really doing everything for the animals. And look, I don't doubt that a lot of zoos have the animal's best interest at heart, but it's a sad reality for these animals. It's it's like... it's. Especially if they're not at risk of being in, they're not. Yeah, there's no like, there's no. They're not at risk of going extinct. Mm. So we're then talking about okay, well, is education enough of a justification to keep animals on books that aren't endangered? Mm. I don't know. But like talking about that, let's talk about some alternatives to going to the zoo. Um, because, you know, listener, you probably know where we stand with it. And there's a lot of people who, who aren't vegan who who also don't believe in going to the zoo. But if you did want to stay connected with animals, we're just going to run through three alternatives. And we had an experience over the weekend with this one for the first time, an animal sanctuary um, here in Tasmania. Uh, we had a lovely tour for what it went for about an hour or two. And we got to meet some saved cows. Oh, my God, these cows are like... They're so beautiful. Uh, gorgeous. Like cows that, you know, we pass by cows all the time in the countryside, but rarely do we see cows like this. They had so much hair on them, so hairy. 
um and they seemed to be really happy and we met some pigs some stray cats <laughs> um goats sheep ponies turkeys turkeys not there weren't really too many chickens there were roosters. more roosters oh, just because they yeah. get abandoned yes because as a male you don't serve really any purpose so that's probably why they didn't have they have more of the scraps that you would call yeah. as part of the chicken industry yeah or the egg industry more specifically so it's amazing and even uh, lots of rabbits yes because apparently a few years ago there was someone on MasterChef that did a rabbit dish and the rabbit meat industry exploded and then someone decided to open up a farm and they had, I don't know, thousands of, of rabbits in small cages and then they decided to sell that farm. And luckily, the owners of this sanctuary bought it out with somebody else and they rescued over 3,000 mm. or 300, I can't remember, some ridiculous number of rabbits and they've still got their longest living rabbit that's currently at the hospital, as they call it. So let's just take a step back. I mean, what is an animal sanctuary, right? I mean, it's we hear about it all the time, but what is it? And from our experience and talking with the owner and and how it, and seeing how it's run, it is a nonprofit that rescues farmed animals that have been abandoned or you know can can be rehomed or on their way to slaughter yeah um like for example so i'm going to bring up an example i don't quite remember you probably remember boy with the cows yeah one of the cows jumped off the back of the truck and they just found it in like the ditch and so they rescued the cow and yeah it's been on the farm ever since yeah so that lucky cow was obviously petrified as to where it was going yeah and took matters into his own hands and yeah escaped and so then and and then we've got a lot of these uh, I, I actually didn't know this about the dairy cow industry so the male dairy cow in the sanctuary was about 19 years old if it lived its conventional life a lot of the male dairy cows again like so like when he don't says have dairy cows that means like part of if they're born within the dairy industry yeah if they're born there's no point correct yeah if they're born within the dairy industry then yeah. they've got no value so basically from the age of four days old they're eligible to be sent off so you've got cows ranging from a week old to a couple of weeks old being sent off for twenty dollars a pop like peanuts and slaughtered and gutted. They'll use some of their organs and stuff for medical research. Um, generally, their skin is used for leather. And then the rest is just blood and bones. Like, that's it. That's the value of a male cow born in the dairy industry. So, um, And for some of so, you that might be listening that aren't aware, and this is something that he brought up, that he says every time he mentions that a lot of people don't realize that a female cow needs to be pregnant or had given birth like a woman would to produce milk they don't produce milk on tap when they're not lactating really so essentially if a cow is born male and this is what happens to it if it's born female then it also then starts its life as part of the dairy industry and is constantly 
artificially inseminated, normally artificially inseminated and goes through that cycle of constantly being pregnant or lactating. So the cycle continues until it's sort of spent and the, the female cow is then deemed useless if they're no more able to produce young. Yeah, so, you know, this is stuff that is pretty confronting, but it's um, yeah, I'm really glad that we went because like what I suppose the intention of a zoo is trying to do is to connect us to animals. The sanctuary certainly made me feel that connection and I'm sure, I mean, you're crying at, at a few times when we're at the sanctuary. I think we really felt that connection with the animals and to learn that perspective and where they've come from and the, what their journeys are and their names and um, their personalities. So that was a really great experience. And I think so if you are so fortunate to have a sanctuary in your area, unfortunately, it's not a perfect system in the sense that a lot of the people running these sanctuaries are very selfless or trying to do the right thing. They can sometimes take on more than what they can handle in terms of animals um, they're very dependent on volunteers and donations to try and keep things running and they may not have time to run some tours, you know, so to be able to see these animals. And I mean, like sometimes you also find that certain sanctuaries actually will refuse to have people do tours and things like that because they want the animals to live in as much of a natural environment without human intervention as possible. So there's also situations like that which I think we need to respect and understand that that's sure. just the choice yeah, that they've decided call. to yep. make. And, you know, I don't think that there should be a massive push so much for them to do tours all the time because then again, they're commercializing it and that not that they're trying to make money off people for the animals, but then the animals kind of have a duty to perform an inverted commas for people so i think we've got to be careful where the animal's welfare comes first before uh, getting people for educational purposes to come but like these guys that we went to on the weekend i've never seen them open up their doors mind you i think he has about 40 volunteers 40 50 volunteers that come but that's a completely different thing than you know a group of 20 people 20, 30 people that show up there surrounding a particular animal. So I think we've got to keep that in mind that as well, there's so many different resources that we can have that don't include being having to be physically close to these animals to be able to learn about them. Yeah, absolutely. You're spot on about that. So um, just the last couple points here is some alternatives to zoos, not necessarily for the public, this one. But there are wildlife rehab centres. Uh, it's something that we touched on earlier, but they're normally government-funded, very targeted, with the sole purpose of to bring in injured animals, give them some care, veterinary care, and reintroduce them back into nature. Um, so uh, that's happening. There are some wildlife rehab centres as well mm. um, that may be in your local area. So you're not going to be getting any exotic animals or um, farmed animals in those type of situations, but more your local wildlife and how they're being rehabbed. I guess if you do want to like get close to animals, volunteering is probably your best bet in learning about them and getting familiar with certain animals. 
in a way that benefits the animals and you know feeds your soul as well so I think that's probably no matter where it is that you go if there's animals there's always help needed to be able to continue to support them the best way possible yeah I think that's a, that's a good point and the the last thing that we want to touch on is to challenge yourself to spend more time in nature I mean, yeah. that's a, a fast track to familiarize yourself with animals in your area. And, you know, indigenous cultures have lived with the animals for centuries and learned so much about them as a result of that integration. You know, we've had our stint in, in farm life in, in here in Tasmania, and that was uh, something that pushed us pushed our comfort zone in terms of being exposed to the insects and the nature but then the beautiful parts of it as well uh in echidnas and natural wildlife and wallabies and snakes and all of that 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 comes with it but um it certainly we felt much more connected with nature when we spend more time there and you hear this a lot of people who are constantly going for hikes or constantly spending time out there that they have a deeper appreciation for yeah. the environment, which includes all of the, the animals in that as well. So uh, it's a good opportunity for us to get up and away from our screens and back into nature and obviously do it in a safe um, way. way. Don't go out there looking for, for bears that can kill you with one swipe. So yes. just, be, <laughs> yeah, exactly. just be sensible about the types of animals that you're prepared to go out there and experience out in the wild. Yeah, and look, we hope this conversation has shed some light on the zoo industry and maybe just has got you thinking about, you know, what's happening behind the scenes, maybe asking some questions of your local zoo yeah, uh, to get some clarification on some of the things we've discussed so you can find out for yourself. Because mm, every um, zoo is going to be different. Absolutely. Yeah. And they're going to have different programs and some are going to be much more beneficial than others and vice versa but i think if you were to ask a question i think a really good starting point would be um and you could probably ascertain this yourself but if you're going through the zoo try and determine how many of the animals are actually endangered mm. and and i think that will give you a really clear indication of the intent behind the practice and what they're doing and um or you even know. local to the area, you know, I think it's also important to know that how many exotic animals are in that zoo compared to the ones that you'd find, you know, out in the wild a few kilometres away from the zoo. Yes, absolutely. Uh, so, yeah, those are some things to think about, some food for thought. Um, but outside of that, let's wrap it up. Thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, for another episode of the Minimalist Vegan Podcast. Again, you can find the show notes over at theminimalistvegan.com slash 072. And um, yeah, ping us a, a direct message or an email if you have any questions about what we've discussed this week. Sounds good. Thanks so much for tuning in, guys. I hope you have a wonderful week and we'll be back again in another fortnight. Thanks. Thank you. Bye. Bye.